What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity and Play. I'm Steve Felberg. And I'm Harry Alice Long. You can find us online and be notified of future shows at creativityandplay.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Creativity Play and download archived editions on iTunes. Our guest today on Creativity and Play is Tony Wagner, author of Creating Innovators, the Making of Young People Who Will Change the World, and also the Global, sorry, the global Achievement Gap. He has recently collaborated with filmmaker Robert Compton to create a 60-minute documentary on the Finland phenomena inside the world's most surprising school system. Tony was the founder and co-director of the Change Leadership Group at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and recently accepted the position as the first innovation education fellow at the Technology and Entrepreneurship Center at Harvard. Tony Wagner, welcome to Creativity and Play. Oh, great to be with you. Well, first of all, as we were talking before we went on the air about your, your latest book, Creating Innovators, it, it's cool because it's not just a straight textbook, but has the interactive uh, QR smart codes that people can interact with with their uh, smartphones to find more information, more resources, videos, uh, which is, is very cool and you don't see very often. And so, nice, nice. I, I think ours to, was uh, one of the very first books to make extensive use of of the code technology and but all due credit goes to my collaborator Bob Compton who uh, has made a number of documentaries his most well known being 2 million minutes but also the the Finland phenomenon we did together but it was entirely Bob's idea to uh, embed these codes and then he shot more than 70 original videos uh, to accompany the book all of which by the way can be seen on their own at creatinginnovators.com you don't have to buy the book to see the videos very cool and it also kind of raises, for me, ideas about how do you adapt such approaches to other learning experiences outside of books like conferences or classrooms and things like that where the same sort of supplementary material kind of help expand our experience. So thanks for the inspiration on that. Great. Well, so speaking of that book, Creating Innovators, uh, it, it really, of course, makes the case for innovation in general and, and particularly how to help young people prepare for that. But before we start to talk about the education side and, and kids and teachers, can you speak to the importance of innovation in business and government and society? And, and as you mentioned in the beginning of the book, you know, several of the, the reports and studies of CEOs that say this is very, very important, but then oftentimes, of course, struggle with actually being innovative as organizations. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the importance of it sort of in the broader sense? Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's helpful to take a half a step back and define it a little bit. A lot of people think about innovation. They think about Steve Jobs, and they think, well, you know, only a few people can be innovative. They're, you know, you're born with that kind of talent. So I, I think there's really two different kinds of innovation. At one level, innovation means creative problem solving. You can be a problem solver without creativity. You're not going to innovate. Conversely, you can be very creative and not know how to solve problems and apply it. You're not going to solve problems in in better ways. So 
I, I believe, and I think research is clear, that it is in the human DNA to be curious, creative, imaginative. We're born with those capabilities until they're schooled or parented out of us. So I think nearly everyone can be a creative problem solver with the right kind of support and nurturing. Now, there's another kind of innovator, and that's kind of the Steve Jobs is the archetype of someone who brings new possibilities to life, someone who's creating whole new uh, products or services or possibilities. Uh, I, I think many more people could be that kind of, of uh, innovator as well, but I think it's somewhat more rare. Now, in terms of why we need innovation, very, very clearly, uh, human progress is driven by innovation, driven by bringing new possibilities to life, driven by solving problems creatively. In, in, so there's both incremental innovation and disruptive innovation. Uh, that is how we have created culture. That is how we've made progress. Most recently, it is um, particularly in science, technology, engineering, and math, the engine of growth of our economy. But it isn't just for economic reasons that we need innovation. We look at this kind of explosion of social entrepreneurship and social innovation, finding better ways to solve social problems. Uh, that is an entirely different kind of an approach to innovation. So I think you know, across the realm of human experience, uh, innovation is absolutely vital. And so shifting it into the classroom and, and the focus of your book about actually preparing young people, as, as you say in the subtitle, who will change the world, what does that look like in practice in, in a classroom where what we've done traditionally has been often very rote learning and memorization and regurgitating back? What's, what's different in a classroom that's preparing young people for innovation? Well, it was fascinating um, just to kind of describe a little how I went about this. I interviewed a wide variety of young people in their 20s who were, in fact, creative problem solvers. They weren't the next deep jobs. They were just kids out there solving problems in science, technology, engineering, in the arts, and in social arenas, social innovation and entrepreneurship. I then studied their ecosystems. And by the way, these kids were both from privilege and poverty. They weren't all just kind of well-to-do middle-class kids. I then studied what I call their ecosystems. I interviewed all of their parents to see if I could discern patterns of parenting. I then asked each one of them, was there a teacher who had made a significant difference in their lives? Interestingly, most could name at least one teacher. Rarely could they name more than a couple. I then interviewed all of those teachers. And the grade range of the teachers who had the greatest impact on these kids was literally from elementary school all the way to graduate school. And I made what was for me a really stunning and troubling discovery. In every case, the teachers who had really had significant impact on these innovators was an outlier in his or her institutional setting, teaching in ways that were fundamentally different than his or her peers or colleagues or, the, or than the kind of learning and teaching you see in most schools. There were five fundamental differences and distinctions. Uh, number one, uh, knowing the importance of, of collaboration for innovation, all of these teachers built accountable teamwork into all of their assignments, and they valued teamwork as much as individual achievement, and they assessed students' abilities to work collaboratively. Number two, they, most of the courses they taught were interdisciplinary and problem-based, understanding that innovation happens at the margins of academic disciplines, not usually within specific specializations. Uh, number three, the focus of the teachers was on empowering their students to create and not to be merely consumers of information. So in these cases, the, in the classroom, students were creating 
um, solutions to problems and real products and services for audiences. Last two contradictions I think are kind of the most interesting. Um, these teachers encourage their young people to take risks, to make mistakes, and to learn from them, understanding that innovation demands a, a kind of a trial and error approach to the creative process. This is, of course, in sharp contrast to what we do in most schools where we penalize failure and create a kind of compliance, uh, risk-averse culture. The last contradiction is around motivation. These teachers encouraged, as well as did parents, uh, intrinsic motivation, a love of learning, but more specifically encouraged in their classrooms a combination of play, passion, and purpose as motivations for learning. And it turns out, in fact, that all of these young innovators whom I profiled, again, from privilege as well as poverty, were far more intrinsically motivated, wanting to make a difference more than they wanted to make a lot of money. In our culture, we have a lot of scheduled play. And um, actually, in, in my work, I find a lot of parents and teachers who um, kind of run the other way away from play and into the you know sitting in desks and taking tests and and uh, lack of and there's lack of recess and even lunch breaks for kids. So I wonder um, you mentioned about um, how play, passion, and purpose drive young innovators into um, creating some really remarkable things. And so Tony, I wonder if you could tell us. Uh, a couple of the stories, or one or two, from the book of some of these students um, that you came across who um, have that intrinsic motivation to step ahead, make those mistakes, and innovate in some really incredible ways. Well, I have a whole chapter on, on parenting uh, innovators, and, and uh, one of the things that was so interesting about that was how these parents really valued their children having unstructured time. Um, as a parent of a young innovator who later became the product manager for the very first iPhone for Apple said to me, you know, kids have to learn to get bored sometimes in order to teach themselves how to get unbored. In other words, if you're constantly scheduling kids' time up with activities, they never learn to entertain themselves. These parents also limited screen time. Uh, they, these kids had fewer toys, toys without batteries, toys that you can build things with, you know, Legos, of course, and before that, you know, basic wooden blocks and clay and sand and so on. Uh, the, the teachers also, I think, understood the spirit of play, but in a different sense. You know, play of a four-year-old is very different from the t play of a 14-year-old or the play of a 24-year-old. Uh, play evolves, I think, as we grow older. Uh, Hoitzinga, a very famous Dutch historian, wrote a book called Homo Ludens, Man the Player. And his thesis is that culture and human history and evolution is actually driven by the spirit of disciplined play, adult play. And so these teachers, I think, were understanding that, that play, you know, as it happens in recess, is extremely important. By the way, you, you look at an education system like Finland and you see you know, where they build a 15-minute recess into uh, every academic period. So you'll go to, you'll have an academic period of 75 minutes and you've got 15-minute recess. They understand the spirit of play. But as you grow older, the spirit of play is a little different. It's about uh, really pursuing things in greater depth, um, be developing a sense of, of mastery, which has its own playful spirit. So, for example, Ed Carrier, 
who teaches a sequence of courses called Smart Product Design to engineering students at Stanford, talked about bringing an element of whimsy into all of the project he gave his teams of students, understanding how motivating that was for kids, young kids, or adult kids. Can you also expand, Tony, on you mentioned about collaboration and interdisciplinary problem solving, which is so important. Can you expand on both of those, how that those that collaboration and interdisciplinary problem solving affect um, and, and create innovation? And Well, you know, it was Judy Gilbert, uh, who was then director of talent at Google, who um, talked with me about um, what educators need to understand for innovation. And he said, she said, uh, you know, if there's one thing educators must understand, it's that problems can neither be understood nor solved within the, the boundaries of individual academic disciplines. And you, you look at so many of the important innovations today, they are always um, a result of combining often people with very different backgrounds, different kinds of expertise, working on a problem together. Sometimes even young people bringing a fresh look and a fresh approach at a problem. I read a fascinating story about an 11th grade girl whose father was uh, quadriplegic, I think, from Vietnam, and who was really interested in the problem of phantom limb pain, pain that comes from a limb that no longer is there. And she had this notion that maybe if you applied heat, she knew that if she applied heat when she was doing athletic things, that, you know, she felt better. So she said, what if you could design a prosthetic that had some, some kind of heating element built into it? So she got some scientists at University of Maryland and engineers there interested in this problem. This is, this is a 16-year-old girl who has no science background, no serious math background. She's a humanities person. But she comes up with a solution that is now patented and has, in fact, been a significant breakthrough because, you know, she approaches a problem with fresh eyes. She's not bound and constricted by her expertise. Now, she needed experts to help her, no question. But, you know, if you only rely on the, quote, experts, end quote, you may not get the best result. And with respect to collaboration, that's simply easy. There is no – you cannot name a single innovation that has happened as a result of one individual. Even Steve Jobs credits many people on his team with having produced all of the different elements that were important to the full realization of the Apple's innovations. Innovation is, in fact, a team sport. What you just described about the uh, intersection of, of disciplines and, and what that means for innovating, of course, made me think about your background and your own personal story of the, the shift that you've made at Harvard from the education uh, program department to the technology and entrepreneurship. I'm wondering uh, how that happened. Uh, does it make you an outlier at Harvard? Or are there others who, who do this? And, and what have you discovered uh, making that shift? Well, uh, well how, frankly, how I've, I've always been an outlier. At some level, one of my motivations for writing this book was to better understand innovators because, in fact, I've, I've seen my work as an attempt at innovation. And I've wanted to understand, you know, what, what supports innovation, what helps. And, and I write a book uh, – I'm sorry, I write a letter to young innovators at the end of the book, which is – trying to give a little bit of, of the advice I wished I had gotten 
as an adolescent starting out in education. But I became a teacher first and foremost because I hated school. Now, that right there sort of <laughs> put me in a very small category. Uh, most people become teachers because they love school and don't want to leave it. I, th- I thought my schooling was atrocious and boring, and I wanted to make it, make it different. Uh, and, you know, that spirit of um, questioning uh, has always put me on the periphery, whether it's at Harvard or in the different places where I was a high school teacher or in other university settings. Uh, you know, I find now I really don't belong in a school of education. I'm most comfortable in an environment where the focus is explicitly on innovation, and the Technology and Entrepreneurship Center at Harvard is certainly that. And uh, I'm exploring other kinds of affiliations that will be even more in that domain. Mm-hmm. Um, Joey, so how can uh, parents and teachers help um, students and their children and students in ways that help them embrace their imagination and and their own their own ways of of playing of creating yeah. in the world and their purpose um so I'm thinking of that well, one the one student you worked with who whose parents were so supportive of his yeah. process basically what was going on for him. Yeah. Well, let me speak about parents and teachers separately because I think there's a lot both can do, and I write about both in the new book. Uh, the first problem parents have is that in most cases they're terrified. They see a world that's far more competitive than the one they grew up in, and they want to give their kids a competitive advantage. Now, I understand the impulse, and I certainly understand the fear. I, you know, I have three grown children and now three grandchildren. But getting kids into the right school, pressuring them to – merely get good grades, will not give young people the competitive advantage they need for a, a rich and satisfying life today. First of all, um, the chances of getting into these name brand colleges goes down every year because the applicant pool continues to go up. But more importantly, the world simply doesn't care very much where you go to college. In fact, it's increasingly clear to me the world doesn't care very much at all about what you know. What the world cares about is what you can do with what you know which is a very different both parenting and education problem. So what what I found as a pattern in these books is that these parents trusted their children's natural curiosity, they trusted their children's natural creativity, and they tried to suspend their own fear and judgment. Uh, A specific example comes to mind. This young girl at the age of seven, her name is Shanna. Her parents are Mr. and Mrs. Telleman, Dr. and Mrs. Telleman. Shanna at, from the age of seven, it's very clear she wants to be, she want, all she wants to do is paint. She's an artist. That's just her nature. That's, every, that's all her spirit of play, everything she does. Now, her parents are from medical field. They have no art interest whatsoever. Dad says couldn't even draw a stick figure if he had to. You know, privately, they're, they're scared. As, they're anxious, as any parent would be. How is this kid ever going to earn a living? But they understood the importance of supporting that child's play and passion. They even went so far as to dedicate a spare room in the house to, to being a studio for their daughter. Well, their daughter, you know, applies to these name-brand colleges, doesn't get into a name-brand college or doesn't get into the one she wanted. Uh, but she has an incredible art uh, portfolio, gets into Carnegie Mellon on the basis of it, and bumps along, not quite sure what she wants to do, but then she takes this course on a 3D design uh, and animation and suddenly realizes how it could be used to train people like firefighters or policemen 
in a dramatically better way. And she just catches on fire with this idea. She starts her own company at the worst point in the economy back in 2007, but thrives for five years to the point where Autodesk, which is the largest uh, corporation in the whole animation, 3D, computer design, computer-assisted design business, buys her entire company and, and hires all of her 12 employees. So now Shanna, at the age of 30, is a senior executive at Autodesk. So who could have possibly predicted the trajectory of that career? What, what was so amazing was that these parents had the courage and the confidence in their own daughter and their own daughter's judgment and their curiosity and creativity and were able to suspend judgment. Now, teachers, I think, have to be more intentional. You know, Google has this rule called the 20% rule. You go to Google, you have, every employee has permission to play on company time, the equivalent of one day a week. And Google will tell you that play time, that time where uh, employees can work on projects of their choice with peers and colleagues of their choice, has been the generator of more different kinds of innovations than anything they've done. And Google's not the only company that d does this. 3M, the, the engineering and mining company, has been doing it for years. Uh, so here's my modest proposal to teachers out there. And it's actually catching on. You'll see, you'll, if you Google this, you'll find out a lot about it. I propose that we have 20% time in every classroom, starting with grade one. When you go to some places, like you go to Montessori schools or Reggio Emilia schools, it's 100% playtime. Learning is play-based. But I'm suggesting in conventional classes, we can carve out a period a day, a day a week, uh, you know, a week every at the end of every um, uh, period of time, or even a month in between semesters, depending on the age and the structure of the course, where students are basically told, you are the architect of your own learning. Uh, we want you to pose questions, to, to, to think about what is it you want to get better at or what is it you want to learn or know more about. And we're going to invite you to also have a digital portfolio. We're going to invite you to document your own learning. And we'll sit down periodically and, and reflect with you on it. So this is not just uh, without any structure or without any kind of accountability. So uh, this is not free time. This is creative play time. And uh, the teachers who've done this have told me they've seen extraordinary results, things they did not expect. The kids who seem so disengaged at the back of the room suddenly come alive. And the kids who are the straight-A kids are initially kind of lost, don't know what to do. They've never had an environment where they weren't, you know, busy trying to achieve something that some adult told them was important. So I think that, just to summarize, there are very significant ways in which both parents and teachers can reinforce and support the spirit of play that is so important in human development and specifically in the development of the capacities to innovate. And it is very clear to me that unless you are an innovator, you, nobody has a secure job or even the promise of a job moving forward unless they can be, in fact, a creative problem solver. So what makes the difference between our educational system and the one in Finland that is supposed is you know very superior. I've heard I haven't seen your documentary on that, but I've heard about that many times. And so, what makes what what are a couple differences there? Is this sure. the age of this process well, you all, just talked about? Yeah, kids start school one year later, age of seven. Why? Because every kid is in universal play-based preschool. The Finns understand the importance of play in social development, human development. So that's initially and immediately obvious to me. 
but it's also that the arts are integrated into academic subjects. So, for example, I saw a group of second graders studying energy, non-renewable, new renewable energy. Uh, the teacher ended the unit by turning to the kids and saying, okay, now I'm going to ask you to pretend and imagine that the power, the electricity has gone off in your house. Now write a play about what you think might happen. So the kids are all busy in pairs writing their plays. When you get to a high school level, one-third of the kids' studies are uh, electives. They get to choose what they study for one-third of their courses. Now, electives have all but disappeared in American schools because we're so preoccupied with showing your kids get four years of math and science and so on. And not only that, the school day and the school year are both significantly shorter than in other industrial countries. And part of the reason is because uh, Finland has put together this vast network of clubs for kids to join and be active in that teaches every kind of thing from entrepreneurship to the arts and crafts and so on because they believe that, you know, not all academic learning is the, is, is, um, the only thing that kids should have. And so they want kids to have time for these clubs and these other kinds of out-of-school learning experiences. And, you know, it's fascinating to me because uh, t the two highest-performing education systems in the world, according to tests, are Finland and Singapore. But they get there by totally opposite means. Singapore is a cram culture. Uh, kids go to school 10 hours a day, 11 hours a day. They come home. They all have private lessons. They all have to study for this major test they take at the age of 12. There is no testing in Finland until you're ready to complete high school. And then you look at the results. Singapore is ranked as one of the unhappiest countries in the world. Finland is ranked as one of the happiest. And it has more innovation and more entrepreneurship than almost any other country in the world, including ours. So it's very clear to me there are very direct relationships between how much play and creativity we encourage and what happens in the economies and in the health and well-being of its people in these countries. Thank you. You uh, were talking a little bit ago about the role of, of parents and, and some of the examples, such as the, the doctors with the artist child. Uh, one of the things that, that I've seen a lot in workshops with creativity workshops with adults that have often come for professional reasons for work, learn problem solving or creative thinking for work, or sometimes for professional development of themselves and their creativity, you know, often I think have these aha moments of I'm not encouraging this in my child the way maybe I could, but also sort of coupled with uh, not a self-perception of themselves as creative individuals, as adults. And I'm, uh, as you were describing some of that earlier, I was, it was making me think about is there a role to play in schools for parents to sort of help open their thinking about what this means, what this looks like, and, and to develop their own creative capacities and innovation capacities as an extension of how they might identify and encourage that in their children as well. You know, I think it's interesting, Steve, because uh, it may be that parents – and uh, teachers have to embrace a bit of their own sort of playfulness and creative spirit in order to value it and to seek to foster it in their children. But I have to tell you one of the most common responses I get from people who read the book, Creating Innovators, is from parents who say, you know, I, I'm, I really am thinking differently about how to raise my child now. So it was perhaps just the experience of being exposed to different ideas and the playfulness that you can certainly find in the videos and in, and in a different parenting approach that helped 
these parents understand the need to do it differently. Teachers the same. They tell me that, you know, they read about some of these teachers in this book and in my last book, The Global Achievement Gap, and they say, well, you know, my teaching will never be the same. I, my, I, my classroom is completely different. Uh, and again, as we mentioned earlier, we certainly encourage people to check out your website because there are the great videos and, and other resources related to the book, whether or not people have the book to check out and, yeah. and find examples of. And sort of related to the, all of that in the remaining minute or so, where where are your greatest signs of hope for what we're talking about? That, that's not the what's wrong and what's not working, but what is working and where, where we're going in a positive direction. Yeah. Well, first of all, folks can – I have two. there's two websites. Creatinginnovators.com is where you see the videos and learn more about that specific book. But I also have my own website, TonyWagner.com, which has a wealth of other resources, articles, videos, and so on. But for me, the greatest hope is the educators whom I have meeting all over the country who are, in fact, innovating, who are creating new models from the folks at High Tech High, which is a network of 12 schools that are K-12 and their own graduate school of education, to the Olin College of Engineering here on the East Coast. And, you know, I've tried to profile a number of these schools in both of my most recent books, The Global Achievement Gap and Creating Innovators, because I think those, are the, those educators are taking risks, they're working collaboratively, they're trying in very different ways to create dramatically better models of not incrementally improved schools, but transformed schools for the 21st century. And so from my point of view, the fact that we have so many more of these schools than we did a decade ago and that they're getting more and more kind of uh, uh, recognition is, from my point of view, enormously hopeful. Well, Tony, thank you very much for sharing a lot with us about what innovation is and looks like and some practical examples of of how to do it better uh, today on Creativity and Play. Uh, Tony Wagner is the author of Creating Innovators, an Innovation Education Fellow at the Technology and Entrepreneurship Center at Harvard. Our theme music is Kindergarten, performed and composed by Jonathan Batiste. You can listen to this show and previous shows again, find more information about our guests, and sign up to be notified about coming shows at creativityandplay.com, and find Creativity and Play on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes as well. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dalbert. And I'm Mary Ellis Long. Thank you, Tony, for joining us. I may be off to Finland to check out that educational system. Looks I would recommend great. it. Thank you both very much. Enjoyed it. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.